calling all denizens of the dark, mavens of mayhem, and champions of chaos. Lock your doors and listen close. It's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thanks to all of you. We've got our first sponsor for this podcast for 2023. Best Thriller Books is the premier source for reviews and giveaways of the thrillers that ought to be on top of everyone's to-be-read list. From first-time authors to perennial New York Times bestsellers, Best Thriller Books covers the genre like no one else. So if you're looking for your next big thrill, be sure to check them out at bestthrillerbooks.com. It's the most fun you can have without risking a night in county jail. Brad Meltzer is a New York Times bestselling author of thrillers, nonfiction, and books for children. Raised in Brooklyn, New York, and Miami, Brad is a graduate of the University of Michigan and Columbia Law School. He currently lives in Florida with his wife and three children. His latest book, The Nazi Conspiracy, about a secret plot to kill FDR, Stalin, and Winston Churchill at the height of the Second World War, is available from Flatiron Books everywhere right now. Brad, thank you for coming on the show today. My audience is really going to appreciate this. I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks very much. No problem at all. You have done a lot of work, both with fiction, nonfiction, as we just stated. I was wondering, what was it about this fascinating topic that made you approach it from um, a nonfiction standpoint rather than making it into one of your novels? No, and I appreciate that. You know, there there are moments where I'll find something and I'll say, oh, that's a really cool little detail. I'm going to put that in one of my thrillers. Mm-hmm. And uh and I love doing that. You know, I find that all the time. I find, uh, you know, some kind of cool historical detail. Um, you know, there's a room in the White House that I used once that is was the room where staffers used to meet when they wanted to discuss something where no one could hear them. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, that's a great detail. I'm going to use that in my next thriller set, you know, when we do the White House scene. And right. then sometimes you find a detail that you're like, I don't need that for a detail. That's a full book. That's a full story. Right. So I remember it started for me when I found the secret plot to kill George Washington at the height of the Revolutionary War. And I remember I, 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 for, I thought I was I, I actually you know, did use it in a book. I used it in a thriller mm-hmm. and I used it as like a quick mention on one of the chapters. But like five, six, seven, I think maybe even a decade went by and I still couldn't shake the idea. I was like, what happened? What, is that a real story? Like what really happened there? And it led to my first nonfiction work, the first conspiracy. Then we did the Lincoln conspiracy about a secret plot to kill Abraham Lincoln long mm-hmm. before John Wilkes Booth at the start of his presidency. And this one was, it just fit the mold again. It was like, I, I saw this, uh, uh, I don't think the internet is good for many things, Terrence, but <laughs> I, I think that uh, it's good for, it, it, the algorithm knows you. You think the right. algorithm doesn't know you, but I have a buddy who like says, this algorithm is, is nonsense. He's like, it, it keeps trying to sell me clothes and make it look like I dress in the matrix. You know, these long coats. I'm like, I've seen how you dress. The <laughs> algorithm is right. It, it totally knows you. And so my algorithm is filled with kind of obscure historical facts. And I saw this story about a secret plot to kill FDR and Stalin and Churchill. 
it was like a short little mention. It was like a, you know, half page page article, didn't have many facts. And I just thought, what is that? And Josh mentioned, I'm my co-writer. We were off to the races. We, uh, we dove into it because we just thought, you know, what a story. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's an amazing story with a lot of details that have been lost to history. And you do a great job of bringing that out in your book. Uh, I, I know that you touch on the Nazi presence that was here in the United States, which is something a lot of people don't know about. I found out about it when I wrote a book of my own that was set in 1930s New York. And I was shocked by the uh, depth of the organization in this country back in the 30s. And I'm sure it sounds like you were surprised by it as well. Oh, of course. I mean, and for me, I had no idea about it. Um, and, you know, when, when Charlottesville happened a few years back, again, whatever your politics are, so many of us, uh, you know, we were all wringing our hands and saying, I can't believe this is happening in America, you know, in, in mm-hmm. the 2020s. I mean, it just seemed crazy. You know, how, how are we fighting Nazis in modern time? And especially here, it seems like some that should be from World War II or over in Europe and Germany. And then, as you said, we found this, uh, this story and you've, you know, a lot of people, have, it's not like we discovered it, but it, it just was a fact. I had never heard of it, that there was a Nazi rally back in, in the early days of World War II in Madison Square Garden, 20,000 Nazis getting together to cheer. There's a giant banner of George Washington surrounded by swastikas. The first speaker at the rally says that if George Washington were alive today, he'd be friends with Adolf Hitler. And, you you know, when we see Kanye West shooting off his mouth, using his celebrity to, to attack, you know, the Jewish people, you say, I can't believe anyone would ever do that. But back then, celebrities like Henry Ford and, and Charles Lindbergh used their celebrity to do exactly the same. And right. the reason we're, why are we still fighting Nazis in 2023? Because they were here and they never left. And if you don't acknowledge that and tell those parts of the stories, what, what we re- we reduced World War II to right now is is like a sad greatest hits album. We tell the stories of you know the invasion of Normandy, and then you see a clip of the death camps, and you see the American GI coming, and you see that skinny person in their striped uniform at Auschwitz, and then you just you know we punch the Nazis in the jaw and we save the world for democracy. It's the same clips everyone knows. It's some version of you know, the best parts of Saving Private Ryan. Right. And we do a huge disservice to history when we do that. Because as we all know, greatest hits albums are never all the best songs, right? You got to mm-hmm. hit some, you're missing the whole best part that got that greatest hits album made, which were all the other deep cuts that went along the way. And, and I think we owe it to history to kind of, you know, not forget those parts, because if you do, you're going to relive them. Right. Right. Exactly right. And it's uh, to paraphrase one of my favorite lines from uh, Inherit the Wind, ignorance is the fires of ignorance are always burning and need of feeding and uh, we've definitely seen that happen in our current uh, environment today which is why i think your book is resonating with so many people no i pre listen i you know and, and for me I, I think and whatever this is just where i go i mean i think what you're seeing there's a rise in authoritarianism right now there just is mm-hmm. right and you can see it in putin you can see it all over the world and authoritarianism has a recipe and it's a recipe you see from Adolf Hitler. And of course, long before you can find many more examples, but in the, in the case, cause we're talking about world war II and the secret plot to kill FDR and Stalin and Churchill, you right. see that Adolf Hitler, um, you know, is a charismatic leader, charismatic leader. He finds this group of, you know, na- white native born Germans 
who were suffering economically. Their life just wasn't as good as it used to be. You know, World War I was decimating to them. And, you know, he makes that promise that he's going to give them the, the good old days back again. And, mm -hmm. and then he uses those magic words that you see in the recipe as well. Those people are the cause of your problem. Those people, right. of course, he's talking about the Jewish people. Those mm -hmm. people are the ones who did it. And, and that's a code, those people. And you can see that repeated over and over. You can see it about the black community. You've seen it done about the gay community, the immigrant community. Pick your minority community. And you can disagree sure. on whichever one you want, but it's true. That's what people yeah. do. They say those people. And to me, what, you, what the lesson is, of course, of World War II is you, you, know, you can't just stand there and let that happen when you see that. You have to use your voice and say enough. To me, the American dream is the American dream is not about making money. The American dream is that when you see someone getting picked on, when you see someone being bullied, you stand up for that person and you say enough, enough. Right, right. Because, you know, I've written a bit in uh, historical fiction and, and I've always seen to your point that there's always a they around someplace and there's always somebody who is... Uh, who makes a, a willing scapegoat for the disappointments of people who've been here longer. I uh, saw it in New York City during the Tammany Hall days. They saw it out West. Um, and then, of course, they saw it uh, all throughout Europe in the 20th century. Always. I mean, and go, you know, sadly, it's the history of the Jewish people. I mean, mm -hmm. that goes back centuries. I mean, it just, and, and this, you know, listen, the, the politicians, when, when it, it's psychologically proven, when someone says something to you definitively, you know, those people are the cause of your problems. Even I will be like, I get mad. I'm like, oh my God, they're causing me problems. Who, is, who are we talking about? But that's a sucker bet. Don't be a right. sucker, right? That's a way to get you angry. That politician right. wants you angry. You know why they want you angry? Because angry people vote. You know mm -hmm. why that, that person on the news wants you angry? Because angry people watch TV. It's a sucker bet. Don't fall for it. Be better than what angers you. Right, exactly right. Yeah, and 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 that feeling of the other is very prevalent today. You know, it's, it, it almost gives people the permission to hate if someone disagrees with them. And even if they have an, a, you know, a, a well-considered opinion, they're constantly looking for that adversarial relationship in society. And uh, I think that's why your book has found such an audience, because I think people can relate to that today. Yeah. And listen, and, and, and I, I, listen, I, I, I hope that that's right, that people, you know, really do want to hear a story like that. that they want to fight for good. I also believe, you know, and maybe I'm just petty and small here, but uh, people just want to hear a good story. Mm -hmm. And it's, a, it's just a good story. And I can't take credit for it. I didn't make it up. You know, I found it. It's an amazing right. moment in time. You got, you got FDR goes to Tehran. He's going to meet Winston Churchill and Stalin. The big three are going to meet together for the very first time, look each other in the eye, plan eventually what's going to become the invasion of Normandy. Um, the Nazis have invaded the Soviet Union. It's decimating. The big three have to sit together. It's one of the only times in world history where millions of lives are at stake. This meeting mm -hmm. must take place. And FDR's car comes down the center of the city in Tehran. Everyone's craning their neck and waving, trying to see him. And, of course, he's waving back. But what no one knows is that's not FDR in the motorcade. It's a huh. Secret Service decoy. And the real FDR is across town in a beat up sedan, ducked down in the back seat and hiding because they're worried that there's a Nazi assassin who's about to murder him. And I just ruined chapter one of the Nazi conspiracy, <laughs> but that's chapter one. And it's, it's just a good story. And when I found it, when Josh and I, you know, we were like, this is an incredible lost moment in history.
Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's and it's right there for everyone to see if they want to do the research like you did. But it's 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 fascinating. My wife and I just went to uh, came back from London uh, in November and we went to tour Churchill's bunker and we were shocked by what you would envision it to be like this, uh, even for World War Two standards, this advanced space. But it's amazing that they were able to fight the war from the British side, from entirely a, a basement situation. I don't know if you've been there yourself, but it's- Of it's course I've been there. Oh, I went there with my kids. I, 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 they couldn't keep me away. I went down there. Um, and what's so amazing when you go down there, is obviously a term part of a museum, but it was clearly so high tech at the time that it, you know, it must've felt like the, end, the, the opening scene to get smart to kind of date us, but you know. <laughs> right. But yes. it obviously looks so old now, and there's no computers or big screens or anything we're used to in movies. Um, but yeah, that that it's an incredible moment in time, and you realize, and, and we gloss over it, but just the sheer devastation that was happening mm -hmm. from the Nazis, just the sheer numbers. One of the moments of the book that really got to me is is we we do you know beyond even of course you know the scenes from the Holocaust, which we you know people know, but there's the Battle of Leningrad. And right. the Battle of Leningrad, you know, the Nazis come in and they take the city and they don't even want to deal with POWs. That's headache. So they just mm -hmm. say, listen, we're going to just surround the city. No one gets in. No one gets out. We're going to starve them to death. And sure enough, within you know, no time at all, people are eating dogs and then they're eating rats. And then they're mm -hmm. looking at each other and they're starting to think about eating the unthinkable, which they do. Within a year's time, it's the single greatest loss of life in a modern American city, 900,000 people, nearly a million people are dead in a year. And that's in one city. And, you know, we don't tell that story because when the Cold War happened, we don't want to tell stories where, you know, Russia's the hero of the story or, or you know, doing it. We, we tell the stories of, you know, the American version, the British version, we tell all those. But man, the sheer devastation of what the Nazis are doing is, uh, it just really was like a wrecking ball. Right. Yeah. And they would come in and then they would just decimate an entire area and and as they would say, sanitize it and, and, the, and the brutality of it and the and the cold language that they used too, it when they were reporting about it internally was just horrifying. And listen, the Holocaust, you know, the Holocaust doesn't start with death camps. The Holocaust starts with slogans and rallies and propaganda and book mm -hmm. bans. Right. And Mm -hmm. And there's a meeting, you know, we do the Wannsee conference in the book. And the Wannsee conference is this boring government meeting outside Berlin. And, it, you know, like any other government boring meeting, you know, everyone kind of trudges inside and they have their file folders and they take their pencil or whatever it is from the pencil cup. They all sit around a big table. You think they're deciding on what roads should be paved on this particular Thursday or whatever day of the week it is. But on this particular day, they're not talking about roads being paved. They're talking about how many Jews are in each small town and how they can efficiently murder all of them. Mm -hmm. And, all, you know, we all blame and point fingers at Adolf Hitler, but we forget that all those Germans that were in those meetings, all those bureaucrats that sat in those meetings, none of them said a word. They all went along with it. Right. And my God, if we don't tell those stories, uh, you know, again, we're just going to see them right again in our faces. Right, exactly right. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Hitler was evil and he was the boogeyman, but he didn't do it all by himself. And he had a lot of willing co-conspirators 
And that's something I think that threatens to be lost to history if people like you don't keep that fresh with works like this. Yeah, and listen, that's why we tell the story. I mean, mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, listen, I love a book where I learn something. I love a book where the pages turn fast. But, you know, Josh and I always sit down when we start these books and we say, what's the book really about? What do we really, because telling stories about history, you know, just learning about old dates and facts, who cares about that? To mm -hmm. me, history is only worth studying when it informs us about today. And, and I love the fact that you get to, you know, we all know the stories of, of, you know, we've heard the name Winston Churchill, we've heard FDR, we've heard Joseph Stalin. Those are all the big names. Those are the headlines. But we forget, and I find just as fascinating, the people you've never heard of, who played right. just as vital roles in these moments in World War II, turning this, you know, this kind of giant ship as it's going. And there's a, there's a Nazi in the book named Otto Skorzeny. And Otto Skorzeny is a, a special operations fighter for the Nazis. He gets a, a summoned one day to go by Adolf Hitler personally to appear at Adolf Hitler's uh, private headquarters, the Wolf's Lair. Mm. And he goes there. Hitler's bringing together all of his best special operations fighters because he's trying to figure out who the best one is, who has a mission for the best one. And he mm -hmm. puts them all in a room shoulder to shoulder and he quizzes them with one question. He says, what do you think about Italy? And they all kind of kiss their boss's rear end and start, you know, bragging about how, oh, they're going to fight with Italy. Italy's on their side. They will destroy, you know, the United States with, you know, and, and fight to the death. And Otto Skorzeny shouts above everybody else, I am from Austria, my Fuhrer. And it's a gamble by Otto Skorzeny because he knows that Adolf Hitler's from Austria. And he right. also knows that a true Austrian actually harbors deep resentment to Italy because back during the first world war, Italy took a key piece of Austria and never returned it. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, Adolf Hitler turns to Otto Skorzeny and he's like, you're my guy. You're my guy. And he sends him on a secret mission. I won't ruin this part of the book, but he sends him on a secret mission. That's so crazy that when it happens, you see it in the book, you're, it, you're not going to believe it. In fact, Josh mentioned, I, my co-writer, we asked the editor, to put, we said we need to pay extra money to put a photograph of the this moment with Otto Skorzeny in the book so you can see the secret mission and what he does so you'll actually believe it. And we did. Wow. We paid extra money to make it happen. Um, the, the publisher paid extra money to make it happen. You'll see that photograph and why Otto Skorzeny in this moment earns the nickname the most dangerous man in Europe. And it's the craziest Nazi story you've never heard. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, I would imagine there's... There's a lot of stories that have been obscured over history and also after the fog of war, the victors write the, the history and it's uh, sometimes they'll, they'll gloss over some of the more sentient facts. I was wondering about when you researched the Stalin part of the book, because earlier you mentioned the Cold War and I know that the Russians used to guard their secrets jealously not only against their enemies, but also with their friends. And I was wondering how, how did your research in that part of the, uh, the three assassinations go? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When we did the plot to kill Washington and the plot to kill Lincoln, we can go to the National Archives. We can, you know, call the New York Historical Society. They're happy to help. When you're researching the Nazis, and Soviet intelligence, you know, Soviet intelligence, the NKVD, the precursor to this, to the KGB, is one of the most secretive organizations in the world. 
And the Nazis, of course, are the Nazis and, you know, half their, you know, papers are destroyed by them and by us also in the skirmish. So, and, and we had to bring in for the first time, people who speak German, people who speak Russian, we had to hire researchers who could help with that. And obviously mm -hmm. we couldn't do it without them. One of the things that was amazing to me on, on, uh, the, on the Nazi side is the Nazis used to keep their top intelligence. Uh, they used to write it on something called brown sheets they used to, is, is what it would go on it with a nickname like that because they were truly printed on dark brown sheets of paper. And the brown sheets had, you know, they were put in these special zipper compartments that we were supposed to lock and you had to destroy them within 30 days of reading them. It was like the Mission Impossible briefcase, but for Nazis. Right. And the truth is there should be no records of the brown sheets. They should have all been destroyed. We should never, no one should know what's in them, except the head of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, used to keep extensive diaries. And as a complete dope, when it comes to keeping your intelligence, used to write down what he read in the brown sheets and write them in his <laughs> diaries. And so we all know the stories of how, you know, we cracked the Enigma machine and, and got the Nazi codes. But what I didn't know is they cracked ours. We don't even know. Really? What, there's yeah. no proof right now of exactly when the Nazis found out that the big three were going to meet in Tehran. No one knows exactly the day or how they figured it out, but they absolutely knew it. And they had access and somehow cracked the cables between FDR and Churchill. And that was terrifying to me. Yes. yes. And when it came I to think. the and when it came to the Russian side, um, thankfully there were some Russian reports. There was a a young uh, guy who was in what they called the light cavalry. This a nineteen year old kid who used to ride his bicycle around Tehran. They literally put him on bicycles. These teenagers, because mm -hmm. they were like, that's an easier way to get around. And and one of them, you know, luckily wrote of his account and and spoke about his account in the documentary. And so we were able to kind of grab these pieces here and there. Um, but you know, there's, you'll see when you get to the end of the book, there's parts, we just don't know of this story. There's parts that people argue to this day, the story itself shifts over time. You know, the, the, the Soviet intelligence plays a key role in helping mm -hmm. thwart this plot. And when, when the plot first happens and FDR says, you know, there was a plot to kill me, as we said, you know, the phone starts ringing, everyone wants to know about it. It's, it's the biggest story in the country. Um, but as the, as the 60s, the 1960s approach and World War II nostalgia peaks, the Cold War also peaks. And at that mm -hmm. moment in time, no one in America wants to tell a story where the Soviets are the good guys. So the right. story about the plot itself in the Nazi conspiracy shifts. It becomes more exaggerated. It takes on, you know, now it's a trickery by the Russians. They were trying to fool us and they were trying to do these other things. And there's a whole, uh, you know, group of books that have been written on the opposite view that say, you know, it was this, it was Operation Long Jump, even though there's no proof that it was ever called that with, you know, these amazing, incredible things that have been, you know, movies have been made on, but with, you know, the facts just aren't there to back it up. So, you know, we're playing this, this guy, this giant game of telephone and trying to put this jigsaw puzzle piece together. Um, but as you said, there's just, it's imperfect information. And at times you, you know, we say in the book, um, no one knows how this piece happened, but we know he was there on this day. And it, it's just wild to kind of, play this you know it's like trying to do a, a jigsaw puzzle and, and you don't and you don't have all the pieces right especially the edges at least to give you some kind yes. of frame exactly. i know yeah right. it's uh, and it's funny too how in the post world war ii narrative people only envision myself included until i started doing my own research that the russians were just there for throwing sheer force at something sheer numbers 
against the Nazis, but they really don't talk too much about their intelligence gathering operation. And, and you do in this book, which is why I think it's important. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's and I think it's pretty wild. I mean, and let's just just to touch on the first part, and then we can touch on the second part. The sheer numbers of loss, you know, that also got, I mean, to put it all in perspective, the United States buried, I think it's 421,000 people in World War II. It's a staggering number of people. Mm -hmm. Great Britain buried about 450,000 people. But the Soviet Union buried 24 million people. Yeah. That's a staggering loss of life. You know, and we, of course, always think of the 6 million Jews that are lost. And it's way more than 6 million, of course. And you consider right. everyone else who was lost in the Holocaust and killed in the Holocaust and murdered. Um, mm -hmm. But, the, you know, when, when you think of these numbers, they're staggering to me. And also, again, trying to, you know, figure out that Soviet uh, intelligence was one of the trickiest things of all, because, as I said, to this day, the NKVD gives, gives rise to the KGB. Um, they're not the ones that are coming out and say, hey, everyone, look at us and here's all of our, your, you know, full access to our archives. Um, you know, thankfully, there's some pieces that came out uh, when Gorbachev was there and there's pieces we can make here and there. And there's, there's even pieces when Putin honored one of the guys right before his death and was uh, right at his death. And, and, you know, it's amazing to watch. But uh, yeah, it is, it is one of those things where, uh, yes, uh, I wanted more cornering and edge pieces. Right, right, exactly right. And it sounds like that you, uh, you definitely found them here. It, as, you were, as you were researching the, the core of World War II for this, not, for this book, did you find yourself learning stuff about the First World War that you might not have known? Because I, I talked to a military historian once and he said, in order to understand World War II, you have to really understand World War I because all the seeds were sown there. Yeah, I mean, the, I guess this is where my own nerdiness comes out. I mean, I, the thing I, I, I've studied, you know, not, not, not as deeply as we've done World War II, but of course, the greatest seeds that are planted is just how devastating World War I is to Germany, right? right. It sets up Germany. Germany is this thriving, amazing you know, place that's sparkling, especially in their memories. Um, and World War I decimates them and allows that opportunity, you know, obviously clearly simplifying here, but just for the sake of our conversation, sure. a lot allows Hitler um, to rise in that way he rises in that authoritarian way where he makes that that promise that you see over and over generation after generation, decade after decade of, you know, I'm going to make your life wonderful again. And I'm going to give you all the things that you had in the heyday. Um, mm -hmm. And and that is all those seeds are planted in World War One. And, you know, so, yes, but but so I knew those pieces and I have some of those pieces. I think for me, what really shocked me more than the World War I side as we got into it and the pieces that, you know, is just really looking at, at the Holocaust itself. And, and I'm, I'm Jewish. And so mm -hmm. as, as someone who's Jewish, you kind of are brought up with the Holocaust. It's just, it's just part of like, it's like if you're, if you're, you know, you're raised in the sixties, the JFK's assassination is just part of your psyche. It's just built into you. And and I right. think if you're Jewish, the, the Holocaust is built into, you know, those stories from like, someone asked me recently, when did you first hear of the Holocaust? And I said, I don't even know, because I always knew it. Right. I don't know. I, I at a point where I have no memory, because it was just always the, you know, the warning, it was that story. But even I just, you know, you have moments that were, 
And again, full credit to Josh, whose research on it was impeccable. But just find, you know, these are stories we've seen over and over. We've seen those same moments of the GIs, as I said, going and, and, you know, finally arriving at the death camps and seeing those starving people. And we've been to Holocaust museums. And you see people looking through the fences and the barbed wire, and we see those showers. But mm-hmm. there are moments I just, I, I wasn't prepared for. There's right. a moment in the book where you see uh, this moment where all these uh, Jews are marched out to a field and uh, are murdered, but the, the actual Germans that are doing the murdering realize that there's kids there. There's about 90 kids. I think it's 90 kids that are there. And they're mm-hmm. like, we can't kill kids. And they say, you know, we'll let the kids live. Well, and, they, and they actually like let, you know, they put them in, pack them in, and the kids are just living in their own like feces and dirt and filth. And they're like, you know, what do you want us to do with the kids though? And they go back to their higher ups and the higher ups are like, you got to murder the kids. And like one of the guys, is like a chaplain who, who says like, you know, what do you want to do with the kids? And they're like, you got to murder the kids, go murder the kids. Cause if you don't murder the kids, um, what they say is, is they're going to be Avengers of their elders and they're going to come after us. So you murder the kids, you murder the children. And they shot them, you know, three or four times, each child, three or four times to murder all of them. And again, I, I know the stories of the Holocaust, but to hear those moments where you're, you're trying to watch someone do the best in a horrible situation and it just gets even worse. Um, there were just kind of moments of that that really caught me off guard because I'd gotten so used to the, the uh, there's no typical story of the Holocaust, but I'll call the, the typical story simply because the one that's repeated more often. Right, right, exactly right. And, and it's, it's being able to relate that story that takes the horrors of, of what happened from being black and white and grainy images that we're used to seeing on the History Channel and in history books and making it real so that people can yeah, appreciate. And, 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 and to that end, you know, to that end, I think the other thing that really caught me off guard is, I don't know, you, you kind of, we tell a story, as I was saying before, about how we won World War II, but I think what really shocked me was just how, it was not a foregone conclusion we were, we were going to win. In fact, right. the alliance between the big three, you know, everyone who has a history book and goes to high school has seen that picture at Yalta where you see Churchill and Stalin and Roosevelt, you know, and uh, their family with their capes on and they look like, you know, everyone looks completely old and haggard by that point. But right. um, what, what struck me about this moment, this very first meeting, which again, I, had, I knew nothing about the, the Tehran meeting, is just how precarious the alliance is between the three of them. And we tell these stories of Churchill and Stalin and Roosevelt, like they're these icons that they're, you know, truly carved out of granite because they're just grand statues. And in Roosevelt's case, he, he physically is. You can go on the mall in Washington, D.C. and see the statue of him and his dog as well. And right. we make them these non-human beings. They're, they're these lowercase g gods. And we do them a huge disservice when we do that. Right. Because they're not, you know, we, we, when we, when you see them in this book, you'll see that, you know, we've now studied, I've studied George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. This book, of course, FDR is, is the lead character that you see in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the lead hero, you know, figure or a presidential figure, I should say. And, and, and when I look at it, I, you know, when you look at who makes the best presidents, it's not the person that makes the best speeches. It's not the person that makes the most promises. It's the person who, when a disaster strikes, knows how to pivot 
and bring the country together and deal with it and be the right person at the right time. And right. that's why we all agree that Abraham Lincoln's one of the best presidents. That's why we all agree that George Washington is one of the best presidents. And although people debate, uh, depending on your politics, whether FDR's progressive policies are good or bad, the one thing that everyone agrees on is when it comes to bringing together the big three and this alliance, there's nothing like him because FDR's one belief more than just about anything else is his own, I think, his own belief in his own ability to charm everybody. He's on a charm offensive. Right. And he is there literally saying, you know, or, you know, literally charming Stalin because he's like, Stalin likes me better than you, Churchill. I got him. And then he's, of course, ch charming Churchill, who, you know, Churchill likes FDR, of course, better than Stalin. Right. And he's absolutely right. And he brings this together. But when you see them meet, they're not great and perfect. They're petty and they're small and they're jealous and they're brave and they're daring. They're all those things. And right. I, I think that's the most beautiful part of the story is that they're just like us. Right. Exactly right. And, you know, at their heart, all of them, all three of them were politicians. So, you know, there's there's also going to be that aspect of their character that people tend to gloss over. Absolutely. So uh, the, the other part, uh, having read a lot about this part of uh, United States history, I've always been fascinated by how the Nazi movement that was starting here in this country fell apart, partially in your, to your earlier point about FDR's charm and, and his leadership. Did you, um, did you see much of that when you were doing the research for this book, how it was starting to get with the 1938 Madison Square Garden uh, convention. But then after that, right around Pearl Harbor, it started to fraction a bit. Yeah. I, I, what really struck me here is, you know, we always say, oh, we fought the Nazis. Isn't it great? Greatest generation fought those Nazis. But no one wanted to fight the Nazis. Right. Nobody wanted to fight the Nazis. We were after World War I, rightfully, America was so devastated by the loss of so mm. many sons in that war, no one wanted to go and fight a war across the globe again. When the stock market crashes, we're devastated. FDR is elected to save the country from ruin. The last thing we want is to go fight abroad. You know, we're isolationists. The only reason we get involved with World War II, we don't care, is, is of course, Pearl Harbor. Right. When Pearl Harbor happens and the Japanese attack, we, of course, declare war against the Japanese. We don't declare war against the Nazis. We don't say, oh, now is the time to do the right thing and fight the Nazis. We don't even want to deal with them. Right. The reason we fight the Nazis is because Adolf Hitler makes one of many miscalculations in the war. And he says, I'm going to declare war on the United States. And his own advisors are like, don't do that. You know, you don't, you don't need we don't need to be in this fight. Let let the United <laughs> right. States fight with Japan. We'll fight with, you know, Great Britain and we'll take France and everywhere. You know, we, we got Europe here. Let them do their thing and we'll do our thing. And Hitler is such an egomaniac that he basically is like, strong people don't wait to have war declared on them. Strong people declare war themselves. And so he declares war on us. Right and now we're fighting Nazis, not out of because we're the greatest you know, people in the whole world, but because we got another guy trying to punch us in the face. So we're going to punch back. And, right. and Winston Churchill at the time, not that he's happy that, of course, Pearl Harbor happens, but what he is happy about is he remembers this quote. He remembers this famous quote at the time about the United States. And the quote said that the United States is like a gigantic boiler. And once you light a fire under it, there's no limit to the amount of power it will produce. 
And right. Winston Churchill's right about that also. Right. Yeah, he definitely is. And I remember uh, when America was slow to get into the war, and then when they finally did, I believe they asked him, somebody asked him, how, uh, how are you feeling about the Americans? And he says, Americans can always be counted on doing the right thing when all other options are exhausted. So um, <laughs> I never heard that quote. <laughs> Who said that, Churchill? Churchill said that, yeah. And it's, I think it's in the quote. Spectacular. Yeah, and it was from, uh, I think it was in the Gary uh, Oldman movie where he played Churchill, but I've, I've, I've heard that in several Oh, uh, I hope it's a real quote, because I never trust a Hollywood movie for my fa- my historical facts. I really hope that's a real quote. <laughs> I've seen it in a couple of documentaries, so it oh, was, good. Uh, and, so, and, and a book of quotes from him, too, his oh, one-liners. So um, anyway, so you've, you've definitely, you've done Lincoln, you've done Washington, and now you've done World War II. Um, I was wondering what's next for you in this in this genre that you've tackled so well. Yeah, so Josh and I are working on the next book. We're not talking about it yet, but I, I will tell you about the other book that we have out that came out also at the same time, um, just because you'll see thematically how it ties in. But you know, for those who don't know, I also do a line of kids' books, and obviously the Nazi conspiracy right. is an adult book and nonfiction. But I also do a line of nonfiction books for kids to give my own kids better heroes to look up to, to teach them lessons of kindness and compassion, um, you know, perseverance, mm-hmm. even humility. Remember what humility was a great American value? Yeah, We've I lost know. that. We've lost that. Now we pay attention to people who write in all caps and, and uh, exclamation points. And that's nonsense and to me. And emojis, <laughs> right? Um, and, and so the other book that, you know, we did I Am Amelia Earhart. We did I Am Abraham Lincoln. I Am Rosa Parks. Uh, we've done everyone from, you know, uh, I am Jane Goodall to I am Muhammad Ali. We did I am Dolly Parton is one of the newest ones. And um, we're now doing I am John Lewis, the great civil rights icon. And what oh, okay. we, we haven't really ever talked about is that John Lewis was one of the early supporters of the Ordinary People Change the World series. Uh, he really enjoyed our book, I am Rosa Parks. And when it came time to do I am Martin Luther King Jr., one of our most popular books, I asked him if he would be the advisor on the book. And mm. he was the advisor on I Am Martin Luther King Jr. The one regret I have is I never got to tell him that he we were doing a book about him. And the story you'll see about him is it's a story about getting into what he called good trouble, necessary trouble. You know, when you see injustice, mm-hmm. how to use it. And this is a book that's to help you teach your kids and your nieces and your nephews about how to get into good trouble. And when he was a little boy, if you were black and a white person was walking on the same block as you were, you were expected as a black person to cross the street, get out of the way. And his parents would say like, lay low, don't make, you know, don't make any headaches for anyone. But his grandmother was built differently. And his grandmother uh, respectfully, always respectfully would just stay where she was and just walk and say, excuse me, I'm just, we walk this way, please and thank you. And John Lewis, as a young boy, saw his grandmother's lesson, and he saw the lessons of Rosa Parks and Dr. King and how to make sure that you're always protesting in, with nonviolent ways, not losing your temper, but doing it respectfully and doing it with love. And mm-hmm. he says that, you know, he was someone who during his protest, people would spit at him and kick him and hit him and beat him, mm-hmm. you know, bloody. That's where Bloody Sunday comes from. And the number one question he used to say that people asked him was, how do you stay calm when people are spitting at you and hitting you and beating you and bloody? And his answer was, is it was his faith. 
And that mm. he defined faith as believing in something so deeply that you would make a way out of no way. And boy, do I love that. Making a way out of no way. I want my daughter to have that lesson. I want my sons to have that lesson. So right. the newest kids book, just to answer your question of what's next, um, I Am John Lewis just came out along with the Nazi conspiracy. And, and thematically, they're both the same in the sense, well, obviously one is about racism, one's about Nazis, but it's, they're both about using your voice to make sure that what happened in history before doesn't happen again. Exactly. Exactly. No, and that those are all great lessons that all of us can learn, whether it's a child or it's an adult. It's and and unfortunately, respect and and uh, belief in something greater than yourself is at an all-time low. I think, and we need books like this. I appreciate that. Oh, no problem at all. We appreciate you being here. This has been a, a great way for my audience to be able to get to learn more about you and how you approach the craft. And if they wanted to follow you, what are some of the best ways to uh, follow you on social media, your website, things like that? Yeah, you can go to uh, bradmelcher.com and on every social media site, uh, I am at Brad Meltzer on Instagram, on Twitter, on uh, Facebook, you name it, even on TikTok. We got, we, we put writing advice on TikTok just to really anger my daughter that I'm on TikTok. Um, but you can find me at, <laughs> at Brad Meltzer everywhere. And you can download the book right now as an ebook. You can, of course, buy it in your local bookstore or on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any other you know bookstore out there. But you can also download it right now or the audio book right now. It's in audio as well. And Scott Brick is an incredible reader who does an incredible job. So if you're looking for something or you know someone who loves history and an early Father's Day gift, uh, I think the Nazi conspiracy is going to hopefully fit the bill for that history lover in your life. As someone who has read it uh, and had the privilege to read it early, I can concur with that statement. It's a fantastic book. Mr. Meltzer, thank you for being here. This has been another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you very much, everyone. See you soon. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.